Welcome to the Pants Cast, brought to you by Lululemon, a show about all things pants. My guest is Matt James, former NCAA player and Lululemon ABC pant enthusiast. Hi, great to be here. Matt, tell us all about those ABC pants. The comfort? They're like the pants I put on when I don't want to wear pants. Versatility? You could wear these pants to a wedding, but you could also wear these to a cookout. And what about style? They're like if casual and cool had a baby. Well, it's clear why you're an ABC enthusiast. Pleasure having you and your pants on the show. Thanks for having us. Find the shockingly comfortable ABC pants at lululemon.com. We get it. Distractions happen. That's why we designed the fully electric, full-sized Volvo EX90 with the latest technology to keep you and those around you safe. Its two-sensor driver understanding system is designed to prevent distractions and help you stay focused. Reserve your Volvo EX90 today. Learn more at volvocars.com slash US. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 442nd episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guests today are two of the most talented and prolific TV creators in the business. Writers, directors, and showrunners who have been married for 35 years, they are best known for the legal drama series The Good Wife, which ran on CBS from 2009 through 2016 and garnered 43 Emmy nominations, five of which resulted in wins, and four of which were for them personally, two for Best Drama Series and two for Best Writing for a Drama Series. And they are now behind two shows, which started on CBS, but then moved to its streaming platform, Paramount Plus. The legal drama series, The Good Fight, a spinoff from The Good Wife, which debuted in 2017. And the supernatural drama series, Evil, which debuted in 2019. Robert and Michelle King. Over the course of our conversation, the 62-year-old and 63-year-old, respectively, reflected on how they first began working together and how doing so actually works the challenges and rewards of making a show for a broadcast network versus a streaming service, how they currently juggle two totally different shows at the same time, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Robert and Michelle, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to see you. And on this podcast, we do truly go back to the very beginning. So I wonder if you can each share where you were born and raised and what your folks did for a living. I was born and raised in Los Angeles and my mm-hmm. dad was a public school teacher and my mom was a nurse. Mm-hmm. I was born in San Francisco, uh, then raised in San Jose. My dad was a computer programmer. This was before you know Apple made its splash. And my mom was uh, worked at home having seven kids. So she oh was, my gosh. Uh, yeah, that was, that was the real work, I think. Yeah. Um, now for each of you, I was wondering, do you remember how early on you first developed an interest in writing and also when you were first sort of given feedback that you were perhaps unusually talented at it? Well, I mean, I remember I, we had a super eight camera, obviously, uh, in the fifth grade, and I remember making little movies and being very excited that you can make people disappear by just stopping the camera, having that person leave, and then starting it again. Writing-wise, I would say right in the fifth, sixth grade, because I would write, I was always into satire, and I would, um, you know, you would find National Lampoon uh, magazine as a kid, 
And, you know, it was probably more about the fact that there were naked women in it, but <laughs> there was always these great little, it wasn't Mad Magazine, which I was never into, but National Lampoon always had such clever Michael O'Donohue, you know, and, you know, and I'm sorry, the yearbook satire and the uh, newspaper satire. So that I think was where I, and I started to write in that direction and people found them funny. I think that uh-huh. was. How about you, Michelle? And uh, I was in love with the Marx Brothers, I guess at about <laughs> the same age, uh, fifth grade. And reading about the Marx Brothers led me to read about Georges Kaufman and some of the writers involved with them. And Kaufman always wrote with a partner. And that sparked for me right away. Interesting. Interesting. So before we talk about how your two paths converge, Robert, can we talk about the fact you go off to college thinking you're going to do what with your life? I always knew I wanted to do filmmaking. I was applied to CalArts and didn't get accepted. I had made a small movie that uh, I was still editing when the deadline ended. So I went to the school my brother went to, which was a, a Christian college in Santa Barbara. Uh, but it was, I wrote plays and put them on there and so on. I, uh, but it was always with the idea that it would eventually be movies. And, uh, you know, TV was a, felt a little odd then, but movies were always the goal. Right. And, and Michelle, I know you end up at, at UCLA. What was the idea while you were there of, of how this might all play out? There, there wasn't a real idea. There, there was a knowledge of, okay, well, clearly I'm going to be an English major because I love to read. And that was as far as I got, except for everyone asking, are you going to be a lawyer or are you going to be a teacher? <laughs> and neither path sounded especially appetizing to me. But uh, I didn't have a real clear sense at that moment. Got it. All right, so let's set the scene, if, if, I, if I may, before I turn this over to you guys. It's 1983, and you are, <laughs> you're, Robert, you've just recently graduated. Michelle, you're in your senior year. Tell, take it from there, whoever wants to jump first. <laughs> oh, this is your oh, life. God, and tedious as hell. <laughs> okay, I got a full-time job at a uh, sporting goods store right around the corner from my apartment um, called Front Runners, which I believe is still there. And, uh, you know, just to get a, a job so that I could write at night and work during the day. And Michelle was working there part-time. Yeah. Yeah, going to UCLA. And uh, we met stocking the sock wall with with fresh Thurlow socks. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, this dreamy-eyed guy. I'm going to write because they've got to have – they need good writing. Let's – I'll go do that. And uh, – and I have no idea what you thought. I think you thought this guy's a loser because I didn't have a car <laughs> Vespa, and it, it it the the light didn't work on the Vespa. So when you were riding at night, it would go on and off, and it was just <laughs> crazy. I didn't have a bed. I slept on the floor. I didn't have a checking account. It's uh, it was a ridiculous <laughs> kind of you. You were a great great prospect. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Michelle, that's insane. This is a, oh my God, he's going to be a shoe tycoon. <laughs> well, let's turn it over, Michelle. What what was the, give us your side. Uh, well, here's what I will, the nicest thing I can say about my parents is that when I brought Robert home and he still had no bed and no car and no checking account, they loved him the first time they met him. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that speaks to uh, 
them being able to see the good quality. Well, and I was pretty adorable too. I mean, they were, (laughs) yeah. So four years later, you guys are are married. And I I guess what I'd like to ask is there was that period, I guess we're talking 87 through the early 2000s, I guess, when you were not working together. Um, Can you explain what you were doing during those years? I was working at a film production company, reading scripts and working as a story editor there and various places around town. Uh, and you were, I was reading scripts. You got, but you got me a job reading scripts. And then, um, I use that time. (laughs) This is all ridiculous. Use that time (laughs) to write, write a horror movie just because it seemed like something you could sell. And luckily through Michelle's auspices, it went to Roger Corman's company and Julie Corman, who had a movie that needed help. It was a, they had to start shooting in three weeks, which was insane. It was called the nest. It was a, killer cockroach movie and i came in and wowed them with my understanding of living in an apartment <laughs> with cockroaches you know because that was my real claim my ability to dig for my own life right so, uh, and that was called the nest and uh and then i was uh i did two more for roger corman uh with the hope that i would eventually be allowed to direct and i was allowed to direct a title sequence for silk Two. So I did The Nest and something called Blood Fist, which was a kickboxing movie that has a ton of sequels, but I saw nothing from (laughs) the original $3,000 I think I was paid. Uh, And then uh, Silk 2. And then I wrote a spec uh, script called Clean Slate, which became a Dana Carvey movie. But that was the introduction to... So I think I took what was traditionally, you know, in the... This was right around Shane Black kind of time. This was the traditional Mm -hmm. path you took to getting into movies was write us back, you know, eventually insist that you stay on as a producer, blah, blah, blah. You know, it was that, I think. Yeah. So the, the first time you two worked together, I believe was on this uh, ABC project that didn't ultimately go, but that I, I guess I wonder how did this even come about the idea that maybe, you could collaborate as well. Well, we had been tossing around an idea for a feature called The Line. Yeah. And, um, and it, you know, it, it seemed like it, it might be a good idea. It was um, uh, police officers in San Diego and Tijuana and them working together at the border. And then a director, Ron Underwood, came to Robert and said, perhaps we should be doing TV. Do you have any ideas? And he told Ron, well, Michelle and I have an idea that we've been talking about for features. And that was how, I guess, that collaboration started. And that's the one you referred to, which is the line, which was, yes, we were so proud of it had, you know, was very deferential (laughs) towards the Mexican side of the border, which would be great gangbusters now. But at then it was like, yeah, no, no, there aren't enough white people in it. That was the attitude. I think. Uh, okay. and, maybe it was just, and this is maybe it was bad. Well, and uh, we're talking, though, this is about like just over 20 years ago. And at that point, this this doesn't, as, as we've said, it doesn't end up going to going to series. But ha- what, what was your experience like working together? Did you kind of assume did you expect that it would be a, a 
smooth and easy. I mean, there are plenty of married couples who uh, that's their nightmare to, to have to work together as well as live together. You know, it wasn't that big a shock to the system because there was nothing we were doing individually that we weren't consulting with each other closely. And I would say there was one real added benefit, uh, which is pitching. The, the the silence that a writer faces when they pitch is just ghastly. It's like, that'll be the sound when you end up in hell. Is that <laughs> is that sound of no one laughing, no one going, oh my God, that's great. But when you have two people doing it together and we would alternate, but uh, so that was great. And then we kind of re pre-build things. So when you get down to the script, it's not as hard as it might seem because you've constructed it for a pitch and you can try. So you've kind of gone wild beforehand. So I think that went well. And we... I'll say this, we love working in TV because even as disastrous as that first episode was and that it didn't go, what was um, helpful to us was getting quick answers because features, which now, by the way, TV is becoming more like, so fuck, fuck that. But, <laughs> TV, at that point, had quick answers and you could move on. Yeah. You could get your yes, you could get your no. And it was like, okay, I'm not going to be passive aggressive to death and so anyway, we enjoyed that. And mm -hmm. I, I would say we continue to enjoy it. And I think the structure of television, both the structure of the business and the structure of, okay, you need episodes. I mean, there's a, there's a sanity to that that was very appealing to me. Now, was that original show, had it, had it gone, would that have been a, uh, I, I guess the the two opposites are either a an ongoing or kind of a uh, uh, what are the words serial versus a uh, kind of what's the alternative like standalone episodes standalone yeah like I mean we're because obviously you know we know the direction that your careers have taken but was that thing that that hooked you on working together was it in that same mold I w I would say it was similar to The Good Wife in that there would have been stories that arced over a season amongst our main characters, but there would have been cases that were standalone episodes. That was what I made us attractive at that time is, uh, you know, you could be a little highfalutin about the serialized element, but also be attractive to people who only turn in, you know, who come in late in the season. You know, then uh, what it would have been 2001 or two. It was uh, mm -hmm. much. It wasn't as much serialized as obviously as you all. get now, you know. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it seems like even though that didn't happen, was there sort of an ongoing relationship with ABC? Because ultimately, the first thing that you guys did have gone on the air was with them as well, right? Yes, and there absolutely was that they came back to us. I mean, and said, "All right, we're not going to make this pilot, but we very much appreciate what you did." here's a blind deal for a pilot next year. And that mm. happened repeatedly. Yeah, that was like our unemployment system. They would just <laughs> give us money every year. Here, go do it. You know, and uh, that was flattering just because features is such a kind of, um, you're always lost a little bit when something fails because you really don't know where the next job is. So what was good about ABC is they, I think they knew there was something there, but they just didn't know, you know, they didn't know how to what it would be, I guess. That's just the nature of television development, too. I mean, it's 
it's they start out the season and they say, sure, write a cop show for us. And then by the time it comes time to pick it up, they've decided, you know what, we don't want a cop show. So, it, <laughs> you know, it's, it's just the nature of that game. Right, right. So what this ultimately led to was the uh, show Injustice, which I believe was a mid-season replacement in early 2006. You guys have 13 episodes on ABC. I wonder the fact that it's centered apparently, you know, it was on, on a team of lawyers, right? Was that purely coincidental that you would subsequently go back to that world? Is, or is that a world that you are particularly drawn to? I think I'm drawn to it. I mean, you know, I wrote a feature called Red Corner, which was courtroom in, uh, it started as Russia and then we moved it to China, uh, which was exploring different ways of looking at justice. I think we are attracted to it because it does seem like a lot of our interest is in uh, people discussing what is right and wrong uh, and mm. doing it in some place where there's some suspense about the decision. Um, I would say, though, Injustice was a weird one. Injustice was a weird one because that was CBS, or no, CBS, ABC approaching us about can you do mm-hmm. something about the, in, um, yeah, in the Innocence, innocence Pro- Project. They had an area that they were intrigued by, so that led us down that path, as opposed to with The Good Wife, that was a character that we were very excited about, and then it made sense to us that that should be a lawyer. Well, just to connect the dots between Injustice, which is at ABC, and The Good Wife, which is at CBS, I guess we, in a weird way, have the 2008 writer's strike to thank, right? Can you can you explain what happened? <laughs> yes. Um, we were uh, kicking along with this kind of ABC, give us a little money each year and we'll make we'll write a pilot and you won't make it and we'll agree to do it again next year. And uh, then this writer's strike of 2007-8 happened and we were force majeure out of ABC. And at that point, ABC was kind of sick of us. You know, like, okay, <laughs> you know, we paid you a, this amount every year. And you did one. It was 13. How sweet. How cute. And so uh, we were, you know, we didn't know what to do. We were, you know, that was a certainty that we had in our life that as writers, you don't have. And so we came up with two or three ideas that year, kind of like, okay. And one of them was The Good Wife, which we Mm -hmm. then went with, um, no, this was before Scott Free. We went back to ABC. And they said, no, we don't want a law show. And that was the end of that. And we were like, oh, dear, because uh, we thought it was a good <laughs> idea. So our agent sent us to um, Scott Free in the form of David Zucker, who's a very, very good executive and very committed. And um, I'll tell you how committed he is. We went into our first place to go, which was CBS, to pitch it. And they passed. And we were like, to, we called David Zucker. They just passed us. And he said, no, no, they didn't. I'll get to them. It was like, <laughs> how, do you, how do you, that's like magic. How do you turn a pass into, we're going to, you know, have you write it. But he was right. And we were just like, okay, how does that work? But ever since David Zucker has been sort of a magician that is just like, okay, he knows these people. He knows where their bodies are buried. And I guess he <laughs> into doing something for us. And that same year we did do another pilot that's wrote another pilot that we sold to ABC that same year. Uh, so we were developing two at the same time thinking, all right, we better double our, you know, hedge our bets. And uh, that was called Dawn and it was a Don, an updated Don Quixote type story. And 
everyone thought Dawn was the one that was going to go. You know, <laughs> her agents, our mothers, everybody thought. And <laughs> so Good Wife was the surprise. Wow. Well, to, to talk about, um, you know, The Good Wife here, this is obviously seven terrific seasons on CBS. And I wonder, though, if you can describe the very sort of specific moment that it was born out of what what was going on in the zeitgeist for anybody who needs a reminder that may have inspired you guys to tackle that sort of a, a subject i think there were two things you can talk about one which is well there were just sex scandals everywhere you looked i mean you you couldn't get up in the morning without seeing some man being brought down by a sex scandal which is you know terrible for their families and Fabulous for those of us that like a sex scandal. <laughs> and then the other aspect is Michelle was aware that the women involved were always put on the stage with the man to show this is how dedicated I am. Look, this woman standing next to me. And that when you looked at the woman's career, they gave up their career for their husband. They often sometimes were the campaign manager or and often in the case they were lawyers, ex-lawyers. You know, they gave up their career so the husband could succeed. And obviously that just seemed really cool because can you find any more anyone more sympathetic in the world than someone who did not do anything wrong at them by themselves? They were, in fact, the injured party, but the world looks at them as damaged goods. I mean, that just seems like now, even now, I think it's a pretty good idea. Like someone because <laughs> it just seemed like um, so much about me, too, but before me, too. So anyway. That right. seemed, I would say that was it, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And and in terms of your own lives at the time when you embarked on this, I guess, seven-year or eight-year, seven-season journey, um, you're, first of all, you have uh, one child, right? And you're, she was quite young? She was at that point about nine. And I, I'd heard a funny story that you guys kind of, Deferred to her as far as naming the characters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was funny to go back and realize everybody in her like third grade class were names of characters in, in Good Wife, <laughs> like other lawyers and stuff. Elizabeth Tassioni was a combination of two names. One is her teacher and one was a like a fellow student. So it was all letting her choose because why not make it a family affair? Right, right. And uh, another key ingredient, of course, is is the... Uh, amazing ensemble that you guys put together for this. And first and foremost, Juliana Margulies as Alicia. I I want to just uh, clarify something that I read, which is now in hindsight impossible to believe, but she was almost not interested in doing a show about legal subject matter. Is that right? I don't know if that's the case. I think we were concerned that that would be the case. I, we okay. were worried that because she had just done Canterbury's Law, that perhaps she wouldn't want to do a law show. But uh, very fortunate for us, um, she didn't hold the genre against us or the show. She she saw it as the good wife and not the good lawyer and was very, she understood the character right away and immediately. I mean, she- In fact, I think the two people had a lot to do it other than writers was- Nina Tassler and Juliana, because they were obsessed with not making it a traditional, here's a law show with a, with a jury and, you know, the usual bullshit that comes with often network <laughs> kind of thinking. So that, I would say they had a lot to do with allowing this kind of the lead with character and follow with procedural. 
And and so just to kind of for a listener who wants to imagine what this was like for you guys, you do the pilot, get gets ordered initially thirteen episodes, right, and then eventually twenty three for season one. Um, at the time, you guys and your writers are in L.A. The show shooting in New York, posing as Chicago. Um, <laughs> there's a lot going on there, but I want to ask. Just, I mean, now with that kind of a situation, more so than with even Injustice, which I guess was you know a, a quite short lived thing. You are also the showrunners. You're uh, you you're you're responsible for everything. Can you explain for for someone listening what that actually means to be not just writers of the show, but showrunners. I actually, and before you answer that, I want to just note, I had seen Robert, you had said once that in your mind, John Wells was sort of the, the guy who created the modern showrunner. So just, I mean, to do that job for, I believe the first time in a real way, just what does it entail? And, and how did you guys adapt? Well, if I could quote Bill Prady from uh, the big bang theory, when he was asked, what does a showrunner do? He said, imagine being a full-time writer and then also managing four 7-Elevens in the Valley. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think he nailed it. That's, that's yeah. what it means. You know what? Uh, I, I only will go on about uh, the auteur nature of a showrunner. I, I avoid it because it's pretentious. But I do think there's an attempt recently to undercut the power of the showrunner, either calling it a head writer or whatever. The showrunner is in control of everything creative on the show, except for the acting itself. They work with the director, either with tone meanings, they uh, choose the cost, the wardrobe, they choose the sets. They um, are the voice of the show. Because if you don't have a voice of the show, it just starts kind of turning into a gray matter. Um, so I do think the, the pretentious aspect of it, a showrunner is involved and in control of everything. And the most important thing for me is the editing and who cuts mm -hmm. the last cut and who puts it. That, I think, is the most important. One of the most important parts of the showrunner, other than writing, is that last rewrite, which is editing. Um, so anyway, I would say that's the job of the showrunner. And I only worry that showrunning is, is because of movies and the infection of movies into TV is sort of being more undercut. Um, well, and, and the, the key distinction, just again, if there's anyone listening who's not uh, as familiar with the with the way it works. I mean, in television, you could have a different director every yeah. episode. Now, and as it turns out, you guys have sometimes directed episodes of your own shows. But that's basically how, how complicated was it when you're on the West Coast and most of the people who are working for you on the show were on the East Coast, which I guess was the dynamic until fairly a while into The Good Wife. Well, we were very pre prepared for Zoom meetings and everything because that's what we were doing. <laughs> we were doing the the the, the uh, predecessor to Zoom meetings for like five or six years more. Um, the bottom line is you take a lot of trips out. I mean, the 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 wait the flight attendants really get to know you. You, you take <laughs> usually the same flight out, and uh, you're on the set when need it be, and you're in contact constantly. You do what is tone meaning, which is usually a three to four hour sit down with the director going through every beat. This is comic. This is not meant dramatically. This is um, meant to move fast. This is slow. You know, it's that kind of thing. Be careful that you only have 42 minutes. So don't do a lot of elaborate setups. Try to get right to the heart of the matter. And we hate proscenium march 
introduction, starting by just having someone walk around the corner. So you just go through this elaborate dance. You have concept meetings, take all the departments through what really is intended by this, which usually starts with some understanding of the whole point of this episode is to be funny. Even though it's they're talking dramatically, it's all happening fast and comically. So I would say that is the way you really stay in touch. And then you have someone like Juliana Margulies, who's very much like a, a writer's dream because she is, she understands, or if she doesn't understand, she tries to do exactly what the script is suggesting. And then she will call you if there's any issues. But anyway, that, what would you think? Yeah. And that, and, you know, having a good relationship with your production team on, on the other coast and being in constant contact. And so at that, you know, with just as a case study with The Good Wife, obviously we're going to talk about the other shows as we move along. But with, with that, there's also, with with any of these big shows, a, a writer's room. Are you guys, how, how much of the actual, uh, you know, we're talking 22, 23 episodes a season. How much can, how much can you guys personally be involved with every episode in terms of the writing? A lot. Yeah, a lot. I mean, <laughs> obviously, the writing is what matters um, more than anything. Um, you know, we didn't have much of a life. We had a very good number two in Ted Humphrey, who was with us, I think, almost every season. Um, and then Craig Turk. And then Craig Turk, and, yeah. And Courtney Kemp also. Yeah. I mean, we, we had we had spectacular writers, and some of them are also attorneys. So we were quite reliant on them, especially for legal expertise that we didn't go too crazy. Yeah. I mean, the difficulty is if you don't really have a script that you believe in, it's very hard to go every step of the way through the process because, you know, it's just as hard to do a bad show as a good show. So it's very <laughs> difficult to start and, you know, make sure everything is what you want it to be. Well, and it's, it's interesting. The, the timing of the good wife is essentially when you guys went on the air, it was right before, streaming took off as a alternative and by the end of your run with the good wife it was becoming you know the dominant thing at the emmys and everywhere else to the extent that i think aside from this is us you guys are the last drama series from a network show to ever get nominated for best drama series um i wonder if you can talk about being on the inside of network as streaming is taking off uh the fact that you are on the hook for so many more episodes you have way more limitations constrictions or whatever in terms of what you can say and show you've got to factor in for your commercial breaks all of that were, were those kinds of things some people uh like we you know we had aaron sorkin on this podcast he says he likes being boxed in in certain ways it forces him to get creative and 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 he liked that what's your feeling about that i i I would agree with him on, on a lot of, on every piece of it, except running time where there's no fun mm -hmm. being boxed in on running time. But I agree. I think uh, it does force creativity. Do you feel different? Oh, yeah, no, I, I completely, the only thing uh, why we wouldn't go back to the network is 22. Oh yeah. The, um, yeah. There's, mm -hmm. no, there's no fun in that. Yeah. I mean, it's it, just uh, like it, brutal. Huh? It was always like the grass is greener. It is fucking greener. It's greener to do <laughs> 10 episodes or eight episodes. And, you know, there was one year where we did 22, the fifth season, where it was like, well, we could run 
Eight of these episodes is comedy, five episodes is drama, and then the other is a mix because there were so friggin' many. So you just right. you just start to kind of go, all right, why are we killing ourselves? Let's not kill right, ourselves. Right, right, right. Um, so I guess, how did you know? You announced, I think, going into season seven that that was going to be your last season of, of your running the show, but I guess there was a for a, a, a while a possibility that it might go on with others it ultimately didn't it was seven seasons was the end but how did you know it was time to end the good wife and can you talk about the symmetry with which you did so i mean starts with a slap ends with a slap we wanted that and we also titled the episodes based on where it was in the run you go from one word titles up to i guess it was four, four word titles and then back down to one we want i mean the, the the satisfaction of doing a lot of episodes is the satisfaction of a seasonal long structure that and a, and a series long structure that where there's a mirror image to it. So we always felt like the show kind of built up to Josh Charles's death or not his death, uh, the Josh character, uh, Will, Garner. uh, Will Garner's death, and then kind of slid down the hill. But at a certain point, you realize you can only do so many romantic permutations and then you really are kind of you're breathing the same air over and over again. We were always excited by what was going on in the world and how you could comment on what was going on in the world. But at a certain point with the personal of Juliana's character, you, you start to run out of this, of the ability to surprise the audience, especially romantically. And the fact that where where the show went in terms of she starts out as of course you know basically the 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 archetypal you know the, or not the archetype but basically as as you set it up the woman who's been wronged and now what's going to happen with her but she it, it's interesting because this could have easily gone in so many different directions and become primarily a a romance show or other things the fact that you actually uh you know, brought her in the direction of of sort of becoming slightly corrupted in some ways herself. Was that unexpected even for you, or did you know that's where you always wanted to go with this? Uh, for me, I would say that grew over the course of it. I, I didn't walk in thinking she will become corrupted. I mean, we did always think of it as the education of Alicia Florek, and, uh, you know, that's some of what she learned. I kind of think also it was a reaction to what some other shows were ending, kind of happy notes. And it felt like happy notes was not true. I mean, you know, TV doesn't handle tragedy well because everybody, why do I want to turn in TV to tragedy? But we thought there was something tragic about Alicia Florek's life um, because even though she gains independence, she really gains independence as kind of a Machiavellian user and that felt like tragedy, not that you could end on, she goes off in an, a hot air balloon with her lover, you know, to some happy place <laughs> in the sky. It felt, right. we're always kind of struggling with how do you end it where it seems fitting, but also not, that seems to honor the character. Um, right. Yeah. Well, it is quite a thing, quite a feat. I know, uh, Michelle, you've you've commented on this before. It is unusual Quite an, quite an amazing thing in this day and age to have both Rush Limbaugh and Michael Moore as a fan of your show. Um, and that really was the case with The Good Wife, which makes it in some ways extra interesting that you guys went from that to 
The Good Fight, another great show, but in a very different sort of tone and angle and all of that. And so, obviously, first we should say with Brain Dead in between there, with the one season on CBS in between, Tony Shalhoub and uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead. But then you come back with The Good Fight, and I guess whose idea was it that maybe there's more story from this uh, King Cinematic Universe to uh, to tell here with Christine Baranski's character, Diane? Um, we'd uh, asked Christine Baranski to do it and Chris Jumbo, and it was going to be another showrunner, and it was limping a little bit. So we uh, brought ourselves back, thinking we'd get it back on its feet. We'd do maybe one season. And then um, a president was elected that was unexpected. And we changed the series around to address that. And when we addressed it, it fe felt like almost a therapy session for our lives and what we're about. Because as much as Good Wife was, you know, a combination of conservative and liberal, there also seemed to be a sense that uh, that democracy kind of was in trouble. So, you know, we're not going to change the world. But in the meantime, we can exploit that and play out characters that are having troubles with that. So we just um, kind of, uh, I kind of think we got engaged with it, which, you know, I think we could never do a Ryan Murphy where we do one season or one episode go away because we do kind of start falling in love with it and wanting to kind of get your hands dirty in the midst of it. What do you think? Right, well, right. I mean, when we started the show, there were any number of titles we were considering, but once, uh, the political landscape was set it it really that character was fighting a good fight and and suddenly mm -hmm. the show had had more meaning than we anticipated well and just to emphasize the the parallels of the show with the trump administration during the time that it, it was going on uh until 2020 um you guys said it was i guess it was how early on that in, or what was the point in the process of creating the show that Trump was elected? During the filming of the first episode uh, was the election. And did, did, it, did it cause you to go backwards and reshape anything that you had already done? That would be correct. Yeah, we had to do a, some quick reimagining and reshooting. Yeah, so, I mean, the biggest change was to the uh, opening, which Christine Bransky's character was going to be like the greatest glass ceiling has been broken by Hillary <laughs> and that she didn't need to do her job anymore. And she would go off to some vineyard in France. And then, you know, uh, all her money is stolen by a pyramid scheme and she keeps working. But instead we thought she's discussed it with the world because Trump is elected and she's just a gas. So she's going to go off to a vineyard in France and then her money is stolen. So it, it, it was kind of changing the, the, starting dilemma of the show and the the some of the other things that were obviously reflected on the on the show uh you guys have right up through essentially january 6th right with the i guess the copy room copy copy shop court essentially there um you have I love the the uh, previously on right where you have to now somehow account for all the things that have happened within one sh relatively short period of, of craziness in the real world. Just like 
the fact that you were able to be so responsive to current events, that's because it was a quick turnaround for 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 the show. Uh, you know what? Uh, one of the things that working in network does is you're writing the episodes as you're shooting them. So I do think when you're doing a season for a good fight, you have the ability to rebalance based on what's happening in the world. So even though we started in November before January 6th, January 6th happened, and we immediately recalibrated the first episode for that mind. And Orrin Squire, who's in the writer's room, pitched this idea of a judge working in a copy shop, which we thought maybe that's good for one episode. But when January 6th happened, it felt like, oh, maybe we all agreed that maybe that was a good arc for the year because this whole balkanization of America is a good to play out through that kind of comic scene, that theme eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. It goes down in the deal. It go down. It go down in the deal. 21 plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See full terms at FanDuel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Was there any part of you that felt conflicted when when Biden actually won? Not <laughs> one speck. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's obviously been a big twist in the in the tenure of the good fight. The other one though was uh after the first season on CBS, you guys moved to CBS All Access, which is now Paramount Plus where it has been ever since and I wonder what the the rationale or the re, you know the what went into that decision because I could see pros and cons of both places. I just wonder for you guys how you felt about the move. Well, that might be about evil, which did move from network over to streaming. With Good Fight, even though Good Wife was a network show, it was always thought that Good Fight would be one of the first. They actually thought Star Trek would go on first. And Star Trek had production issues, so we went on first. I, I would say it was the best of uh, it was the best of times and the worst of times. The best of times is it does give you more freedom, as Michelle said. The forty-two minute limit in network is a killer. You know, you're always it's like a trash compactor collapsing your episode that is beautiful, got beautiful segues and <laughs> everything you did. You squish it down, and then um, so that was good, and also. You know, at the end of the first act, we had this fun moment where Christine Baranski, who we've never seen, you know, say anything nasty, says, 
dirty motherfucker, you know, just, and we're having Alan coming back this year. And Alan, who's very much Rahm Emanuel-esque, couldn't obviously say anything worse than you son of a bitch. And now right. is seeing his true colors now on that we're on streaming. Yeah. yeah. So that, it, we enjoyed that, but even more than that, Alan enjoyed that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and it seems like maybe, I don't know if streaming, uh, being on streaming has, has affected this, but it seems like you've done a lot of experimental things with the good fight since it's gone to streaming. Uh, I mean, everything from, dream sequences to characters breaking out in song to a bruise that looks like Donald Trump uh, animation, the the whole previously on episode, essentially. Just, I wonder, would those things have been possible on CBS proper? Here's what I will say. They never stopped us, uh, even when we were on network, for creative reasons. Uh, they they were very supportive. So while we didn't, you know, discuss bruises that talk on the network, <laughs> I can't say that they had a history of trying to stop us either. I think because and we it, were doing what is otherwise maybe seen as a, you know, a legal firm, law firm procedural, when you go to streaming, what is that extra? What is that plus for Paramount Plus? What is, can you give people? So we have a cast that is are great singers. You know, if you can give them anything of that, we love these little animated bits that were like schoolhouse rock versions of whatever we wanted to satirize. It was it it, it gave you a lot of freedom that otherwise you wouldn't explore because you felt like you needed a service story. And so the again, maybe it goes back to time limit too. Well, and I, I guess, you know, this has been reported before, but I mean, it does seem like you guys have have had a very amicable relationship with the network for a very long time with one notable exception that i'm aware of <laughs> in 2019 where i just think it's a it's an interesting again for people who are listening and trying to just understand what a showrunner or a writer comes up against sometimes this was gonna what was this was an episode about censorship in the chinese market yes yeah. it was about uh how um social media especially app creators uh, create things often that they then change for the Chinese market. So to allow the Chinese either to censor content they don't want or to catch what they think are people that should be arrested. Um, and so that was the episode. And we'd been doing <laughs> these little animated songs uh, that Jonathan Colton does the music and Headgear does mm -hmm. the animation. And they're like these little one minute segments that would be in the middle of an episode. And there was a song in the middle of the episode that was about censorship in China. And we were very well along our way. And it was at that moment that CBS said, yes, we know we agreed to this in the script and in the storyboards. I mean, we gave them everything. Yeah, the lyrics, we're not coy. We, the lyrics, the storyboards eventually the the earlier animation so they were aware yeah and then uh very shortly before the show was meant to air they said yeah not so much so we do a mix about one week before it actually is broadcast or streamed and so at that point we got these very embarrassed calls from their lawyers um you know supposedly because of the tension with china and part of it might have even been the canadian businessmen who were held 
There was a fear of, you know, and what can you say? Yeah. If there's anybody who's in danger, do you want to hold up a TV show? But we were also not, not very happy because it was an excellent sequence. And Jonathan Colton yeah. did one of the funniest songs about it. It was really a song about how American companies needed to censor themselves. They wanted to do business in China. And so, and so ironically enough. Yes. Yeah. And, and the irony was, was a little too thick even for us. So. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, they. So that was the only moment where we were at, uh, at loggerheads with them. And it, it did, it aired, the episode aired, but with CBS has censored this content on a, on a placard. But I mean, it, it does seem like uh, in some ways that was added effect. I mean, you know, to, to, to the point that you were trying to make. I don't know if you want to, I don't know if you agree with that. But. Uh, we we uh, threatened to quit. And when we threatened <laughs> to quit, they looked for kind of a compromise. And it, I think, was it your suggestion to do that compromise? Which was, okay, instead of doing this, the song and the animation, allow us to put on CBS as edit, as censored the full <laughs> screen. And I, the only irony on that irony is most a lot of people didn't know they thought it was a joke because uh, right. clearly the cartoon was going to be about censorship. And then we say mm -hmm. CBS censored this content. So the ironies were so thick that unfortunately they almost, dis they almost uh, stopped each other. They uh, blocked each other. Would you have, would you have really quit? Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. And that's the thing. Yeah. It was, it was not, it was not a contentious screaming phone call. It was, it was very mm -hmm. calm amongst people that, like and respect each other and us just explaining that that's fine. You can do what you need to do. And, and we will then unfortunately have to do what we need to do. There was right. a rancor there and right, right. So most, they didn't think we were bluffing or I assume right. we didn't think we were bluffing because we weren't. And I think the most right. dangerous thing in the world is a showrunner two thirds of the way through their season. Cause they're willing to <laughs> they do anything to bail at that point. I'm so exhausted. <laughs> Send me over. <laughs> right. Well, that, of course, begs the question, why, with one show at that point on your shoulders, The Good Fight, why and how did you wind up with a second show, <laughs> which is uh, a, a wonderful show, too, Evil, but at the same time, you, I had you, I mean, to have, I, this was the first for you guys to have two shows going at the same time. Why do that to yourself? Because we're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, um, I, I don't know why, except that we were excited by the potential of doing a very kind of different show. We're always intrigued by J.J. Abrams going from Felicity to doing, um, uh, you know, uh, Alias. You know, that they yes. were as different as two shows could be. And I think he asked himself at some point, I wish we could have Felicity suddenly now do spying. And I think sometimes <laughs> when you're in... A, a diff, uh, like a, a certain paradigm, you just kind of want to break out of it. And I think, right. you know, you're always wanting to challenge yourself, I guess. And um, it and did seem like a fun idea. It seemed like a fun idea. And we, yeah. And it, it doesn't get much uh, more opposite than good and evil, literally uh, with these shows. And I guess the, just to set the timing of this, it's literally, uh, I guess it, it really, the real reason it happened, right. Was because, the pandemic made it so you could not proceed as planned with the good fight, right? 
that would be the second season of I was going to say we were Oh okay, I see. I see. I see. Before the pandemic. Yes. Yeah. We, yeah, well, no no no. My 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 chronology's off. Yeah. Yeah, we started with it on network doing 13, which was part of the promise right. that we would do more network if we could do only 13. And then it moved to streaming the next year, still doing 13 and now it's streaming 10 10. Yeah. And the fact that it again in this case similar to Good fight goes from network to streaming. That's something that you guys was that initiated by you guys knowing that potentially you could do fewer <laughs> fewer episodes and and have a little more uh, less less rigid structure in terms of length and stuff like that. Or how did that come about? That was initiated by the network slash platform slash studio that they felt <laughs> like it was going to be a better fit on Paramount Plus and they could be they could support it in a way on that platform that they wouldn't have been able to continue to do on uh network. And it had the first network season had been run on Netflix after it had its run on CBS and it performed mm -hmm. very well on Netflix. So the feeling was okay th this this can do very well in that sort of space. Got it. And as I know you guys have, have been asked about to death, but I just have to prod you one more time, if you don't mind. I mean, you two literally are on sort of the opposite sides of the debate <laughs> that is showcased in this show in numerous ways, right? I mean, Robert, uh, religiously, I believe you're, more observant than Michelle, from what I gather. Oh, yes. uh, you yeah. She's a, <laughs> she goes out late at night to bars and drink. <laughs> no, I, yes, I'm Catholic from a family of nine, and uh, you know, I, I go to church Sundays, and I believe evil has a supernatural element. So there, I'm right. uh, and Michelle, you're you're uh, not more skeptical. Yeah. I am yes. <laughs> more, more skeptical and not as observant. So the show really comes out of a lot of discussions about how much evil or bad things are in the world and where does it come from? Is it psychological or is it something more? And I know that you've said that perhaps unlike most other shows on, on television and most other things that are happening in our society today, a, a hallmark of this show is going to be shaping it in the way that you have those conversations, which is respectfully right yeah and and that is really of paramount importance to me that you know i i want to see characters that are not dedicated to converting somebody else to their point of view and are willing to listen to each other and share their opinions uh respectfully and so the mike culture character who's the religious one the priest in training who becomes a priest and then katja herbert their arguments uh, or discussions about where does evil come from are kind of mirroring what Michelle and I talk about. Right. Now, those two are are so wonderful. And I have to ask, what was it that made you, you know, which which if there was a prior project of theirs that awakened you to them, what was it? Or was it just a, a something specific for this show where they came in and read or whatever? We had worked with Mike Coulter on Good Wife. So right. we knew what he could do. And, you know, the thought of him uh, as a priest 
just kind of made us smile, frankly. <laughs> it was so unlikely. And then Katja was the one I was less familiar with. I'd seen her in Americans, seen her on Westworld. But it was actually when Mark Sachs, who's our casting director, sent us a lot of her Dutch work, where it was like, oh, my God, is she funny? Because I mean, that was what was cool, as you react to someone's comic chops. In fact, one of the reasons to do the silent episode, too, was because of these Dutch movies that had no subtitles. I had no idea what they were saying. But you see it and go, oh, God, how much she communicates, and I don't even know what's going on. Um, so anyway, I think it was that. It was probably also her work on uh, Westworld, you know. Mm -hmm. And I guess also so for some people, they know her from Manhattan, which was kind of a, had a cult following for the short time it was around. But you bring up, Robert, something that I, of course, have to ask you about, which was one of the most... Uh, talked about, ironically, because there's no talking in it, but one of the most uh, special episodes of the of the run so far. This is season two, episode seven, S is for Silence, takes place in a monastery, virtually no dialogue. Pretty bold thing to do. Uh, how, how did how was that arrived at? You know, TV should experiment more and more. I mean, I, there have been other silent episodes. I think we've always been trying to find a way to do a silent episode. And uh, Davida Scarlett, one of the writers in our writers' room, suggested a silent monastery, and we just latched onto it. Like that's a great way to go. And then the the twist being, you know, if you do speak, that you release a demon. It all felt like it fell into place. And the challenge was always to do an episode where you didn't feel the restraint of no dialogue. That you had comedy, you had drama, you had suspense. And it, it always felt like that is the fun challenge of that. Is how do you make the time pass and not feel like we were struggling to fill it. So even the moment, you know, where Mike is trying to struggle to silence his mind and do the, and we see in subtitles that all his mind is saying is fuck, 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 fuck. It all seemed <laughs> like coming out of this very pleasurable way to explore the medium where you could communicate and have fun too. And also Robert was already slated to direct the seventh episode of the season because there's no universe in which we want to hang that episode on somebody else. I mean, <laughs> you know, really, if, if that's what you're serving up, you better be willing to eat it yourself. <laughs> well, you, you guys made a, a, another major decision with the way the season two came to an end, which is, you know, there in, in, on many, a television show, there's been this sort of, will they, won't they thing, which, uh, can sometimes be dragged out too long or or whatever. In this case, you guys went there now. Uh, was that a debate for amongst amongst yourselves, or was it clear that you were always going to end up there? It was not clear we were always going into there. The writers' room is always into ending the season by painting themselves in a corner. Well, that first season ended with her having this burning cross on her hand, which means she's evil now. So, and the second season. It, we didn't get there. We thought the season was going to end with the beginning of the pandemic, but so many other shows was do were doing pandemic things that about midway through the Rise Room got together again. What are we doing? And that seemed to be the most exciting because what does a show do after it unmoonlights people? You know, suddenly, boom, you got them and you're on your way. And, you know, obviously the shows often live off the chemistry of the leads, but the thwarted chemistry so what do you do if you're not going to do that and that's that's why the third season will fail like <laughs> well, it'll be <laughs> because we we taunted the tv gods by 
unlining <laughs> it. Well, and and uh, just to come back to the silent topic for a second, I believe people remarked not infrequently about Juliana Margulies that she could have been, you know, a silent era actress. It's interesting that you guys have consciously, unconsciously been drawn to, I don't know, something about that. Well, that's where the I silent think- episode started, was wanting to do someone with Juliana for The Good Wife. Yeah. But we can never make it work. What were you going to say? I, I was going to say, I, I think it was Josh Charles that made, that remarked that Juliana uh, had the kind of skills that could have translated to to silent. It's films. very mm-hmm. interesting. People with very expressive eyes and uh, where the attention is on the eyes, which is what Juliana, I think, has in spades, is just this sense of, you know, because... The first year, first two or three years of Good Wife, she had the soft and the fewest lines in the episode because she was a, a low-down associate. And so Josh Charles and Christine Baranski were talk, 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 talk. And Juliana was in a corner watching them. And we were always aware, telling the director, get coverage on Juliana no matter, because don't have the cameras, because sometimes you're working with two cameras, pan to the person talking. Juliana is where that scene exists. So I, it, mm-hmm. I think it's always fun with TV when it isn't, shot like radio you know you're not going always to the people talking right well with our last uh two minutes i hope we can do something kind of actually potentially valuable for a writer who wants to emulate your guys uh success just procedural stuff but not in the not procedural in the uh episodic sense but just how you guys do what you do so describe if you would how you actually what does it mean to write together are you guys sitting next to each other at the same computer are you trading like how does that work we uh, when we start off we sit beside by side and then as it goes i will toy with the dialogue and michelle will give notes on it and then we'll toy with it more um when we're i mean because so much of show running is all the other departments we've divided it where michelle does casting michelle does wardrobe michelle does the look and I usually am the one who works with the director and uh, often takes the lead on writers. And editorial. And editorial. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a combination. But with scripts, we start where we're a little, except when we're doing the pilot where we type together. When we're doing episodes, we toy separately and have the other person give notes. Do you outline? Do you know how early on do you know where you're going? Is it, you know, through an episode before you sit down and write the episode, through a season, through a, the whole run of a show? Do you ever know where you want it to end? Any of that? I was going to say, at, at the beginning of the season, we get together with the writer's room. Sometimes we will have a sense before we go into the writer's room. But certainly at the beginning of the writer's room, we will have a conversation about what the arcs of the season are going to look like. Yeah, I mean, the beginning of the good fight, fourth season which was a memo 618, which was kind of a catch 22 thing. We knew going in what we wanted to do, but the beginning of the other next season, that was Oren Squire coming in with that. And we weren't thinking that. And then it was like, Oh, hang on to that. So if you go in as a showrunner too obsessed with your own stuff, you'll lose the riches that writers come in with, I think. Yeah. Um, And the only thing I would add parenthetically is all of this is worthless if you don't have amazing actors, because I mean, if you don't have a Christine Baranski or an Audra McDonald who can bring all that subtlety to the roles, the dialogue is meaningless. It, there's no point in writing it. Right. 
Where do you write and on what? Uh, yeah, a computer. Uh, if we have to, we'll do a laptop on the set. Where we write uh, before the pandemic was um, in our in the office in Greenpoint, which is in New York. Um, Post pandemic, where we write is at home, but with the Zoom as our window to the world, you know, but basically, you know, you flip over from writing to Zooming either with the writer's room or with the set. Um, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah. And there's no, so for you guys, I guess that sort of anticipates the next one of these, which is there's no saying given the r uncommon nature of the fact that you're also married, there's no like, hey, when we get in the car to go home, we stop talking about work or anything like that. No, I, but We've never done that. I, I mean, it's always been uh, very fluid between work and home because, you know, when I'm at home, I'm still thinking about work. And when I'm at work, I'm still thinking about home. So we won't stop ourselves from communicating. And I, would, I don't want to jinx it, but we've never really had major arguments about thing. We had that argument about Peter <laughs> Bogdanovich, but that was about it. <laughs> Well, that actually, that was exactly my next question is, what do you do? Even if it's not a major argument, we all get annoyed at other people. Somebody's tapping, somebody's, you know, doing something that's annoying. What do you do when the other person is driving you crazy? What you I, I, I was going to say, I, annoyance uh, doesn't figure into it for me. It would be terrible if you said it did for you. But, um, <laughs> but, but we might disagree about something. And yeah. more often than not, one will feel more passionately about something than the other and and whoever is more passionate gets gets to gets their way with it in part because what you're dealing with at least on the script level is is words so there are more words if you if you've written a scene and it's not any good you can you know you can cut it and write another one it's not like you know, if you were cooking something and then you've used up the finite amount of chicken you have in the house. <laughs> and I would say that we have one agreement among ourselves is to never contradict each other in front of the crew, mm -hmm. stars, or the uh, writers. You know, because if Michelle says something, even if I hate it, <laughs> mm -hmm. that goes. And I hope the reverse is true because I think it is. <laughs> well, finally, is writer's block real? And if it is, what do you do to overcome it? Um, writer's block is, uh, there's a book out about procrastination. I think writer's block is procrastination. Because if you have a good structure, if you worked with the writer's room to get the structure there, often it's the glue that is the problem. It's the lack of understanding how you get from A to B, or even if you need that. I mean, Prince's Bride is an excellent book about writer's block because it's about someone reading a book, and when he got to the boring parts, he said, I'm just gonna gonna read this. I'm gonna go to the next interesting <laughs> part. And as a writer, that is the key. If you hit something that usually the writer's block is I'm not interested in this part. Let me go to the next action scene, which will make me spark, get me excited about life. And then maybe you'll find you don't need that linkage. You don't need that glue in between. And the last thing how you get a triumph over writer's block is panic, I think. We always have deadlines <laughs> that are nightmarish. And so that's, <laughs> what do you think? Yeah, no, I think you nailed it. Well, I, I can't thank you guys enough. As a 
as a writer of a different sort who just has to worry about a, a article on deadline, I don't know how the hell you do it, but you do it uh, so well. And I really appreciate you taking the time to do this as Thank well. Thank you so you much. Very much. Thank you, Scott. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.